Good. Well, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, it is a real joy to be with you this morning. Um, yeah, if you want to turn in your copy of God's Word to Colossians chapter 1, as Ryan said, I want to consider a section of Colossians, particularly chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Just before we, we look at those verses, just by way of, of introduction, uh, Ryan read for us John chapter 13, the end of the chapter in the call to worship this morning. And there we, we heard particularly verse 34, where Christ commanded his disciples in the upper room and he commands us by his spirit this morning. He says, love one another just as I have loved you. And I trust if you're here this morning and you have the spirit of the risen Christ in you, that is your desire. You long, you truly are eager to show Christ-like love to one another in the body of Christ. You want to feel and show more of Christ's love to each other as fellow Christians. And, and yet, even though that is the right desire and we have it, there is still the problem of our reality, of our day-to-day experience, which is that we don't feel as we ought to toward one another. And we don't show love as Christ has shown toward us. We don't show that kind of love in that way to each other in the body of Christ. And that raises the question, why? Why do we struggle so much to feel and show love to each other as brothers and sisters in the family of God? And I'd put before you this morning a couple reasons, perhaps the two main reasons that I believe that is the case. First is because we have too much love for ourselves. And second is because we have too much love for this world. Self-centeredness and worldliness. Love of this life, love of the things of this world, and love of ourselves consumes us. And it binds our hearts from feeling and our hands from showing love to one another in the body of Christ. And so it raises another question. How is it that we, though born again by the Spirit of God, though new creatures in Christ, how can we who are so self-centered and in love with this world, how can we be freed to truly love one another as we ought to as Christ's followers, to genuinely feel and show love to the saints? And what I, I want to propose to you this morning in answer to that question is that it is hope, particularly heavenly hope, Christian hope, that is the key to Christian love. If you can picture with me love of self and love of the world as though they were two ropes which are binding our hands from showing love to each other in Christ. And then heavenly hope is the knife which comes and cuts the ropes off of our hands so that we are free to show acts of love and kindness to each other in the body of Christ. John Piper has put it this way. I quote him at length. He said, a, quote, a strong confidence in the promises of God and a passionate preference for the joy of heaven over the joy of this world frees a person from worldly self-centeredness, from paralyzing regret and self-pity, from fear and greed and bitterness and despair and laziness and impatience and envy. And in the place of all these sins, note this, hope bears the fruit of love. He continues, 
The problem with the church today is not that there are too many people who are passionately in love with heaven. Try to name three. The problem is not that professing Christians are retreating from the world, spending half their days reading scripture, and the other half singing about their pleasures in God, all the while indifferent to the needs of the world. No, the problem is that professing Christians are spending 10 minutes reading Scripture and then half their day making money and the other half enjoying and fixing what they spent it on. It is not heavenly mindedness that hinders love. It is worldly mindedness that hinders love, even when it is disguised by a religious routine on the weekend. Where is the person whose heart is so passionately in love with the promised glory of heaven that he feels like an exile and a sojourner on the earth? Where is the person who has so tasted the beauty of the age to come that the diamonds of the world look like trinkets, the entertainment of the world is empty, and the moral causes of the world are too small because they have no view To eternity. Where is this person? End quote. You see, brothers and sisters, it is the love of money, the love of things, the love of ease, of comfort, of health, and security, and safety, and family. It's the love of status and position and the praise of men and acceptance and respect and reputation. It's the love of these things that bind our hearts from feeling love to one another and our hands from showing love to each other in Christ. And so the question is, what will sever those ropes? What will set us free to love one another? Again, I quote Piper one last time. He says, The power to sever these cords is Christian hope. I say it again with all the conviction that lies within me. It is not heavenly mindedness that hinders love on this earth. It is worldly mindedness. And therefore, the great fountain of love is the powerful, freeing confidence of Christian hope. End quote. I would not only agree with what Piper has said, but I'd go even just a bit further and say that it's not just Christian hope in general, but in particular, it is heavenly hope that produces earthly Christian love. (coughs) It is gospel hope. A God-centered, eternal-minded, Christ-focused hope that will transform us from lovers of this world and of ourselves to lovers of each other in the body of Christ. And that's the theme I want to consider with you briefly this morning from Colossians chapter 1. Heavenly hope produces earthly love. Heavenly hope produces earthly love. Follow along as I read from Colossians 1, verses 3 to 8. It's the Apostle Paul writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He says the following to the believers in Colossae. Verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Ever since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf 
and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So we learn here in this paragraph that there is a man by the name of Epaphras. Later in chapter 4, Paul says he is one of you. He was a Colossian from the city of Colossae. We don't know where or how exactly, but we know that at some point he himself heard the gospel and came to put his trust in Jesus Christ. Then he brought that very same message back to the city of Colossae. And there he taught his fellow Colossians the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the grace of God in truth. And in the paragraph we read, it says that some of those Colossians heard it from Epaphras, they learned it from him, they understood it, and by the grace of God, they believed it. They put their faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Savior sent by God from heaven to earth to save his people from their sins. They turned and trusted in Jesus the Christ. But it wasn't only that which Epaphras saw. He saw the fruit of true conversion, which was love. Particularly the love that the Colossians began to show to one another in Colossae. There in verse 4, he says, we've heard. So Epaphras saw this. And then he brought report back to Paul and Timothy and told of the work of God in Colossae and that he saw their love for all the saints. Verse 8, Paul says, Epaphras made known to us of your love in the Spirit. So they were faithfully loving one another as Christians in the body of Christ. But what was it that produced such love for each other as Christians. And in order to answer that, I want you to see particularly one connection, the relationship between verse 4, the end of verse 4, where we read of the love that they have for each other, and the beginning of verse 5. And there I want you to see that earthly love among Christians is the fruit, the product of heavenly hope. Notice the connection between the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. He says, We've heard of the love that you have for all the saints. And then watch the beginning of verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You see the connection? He says, you have love for one another in the body of Christ. Question, why? Where did that come from? How did that come about? Beginning of verse 5, because of. More literally, on account of. As a result of is the idea. A result of what? Of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You see, it's hope that causes love to rise up in the hearts of Christians and then to spring forth in our daily action amongst ourselves. Now, in order to perhaps better understand how it is that this hope produces Christian love, I want you to note a couple things about this hope. First, notice it is a heavenly hope. Apostle Paul says it is laid up for Christians, not on earth, but where? In heaven. Laid up for you, verse 5, in heaven. He says this hope does not exist on the earth. That is to say, it is not fully realized and most fully experienced in this life on this earth. Rather, it is laid up. It is kept, it is reserved, it is waiting for Christians in heaven. And in heaven, whether by death or by the return of Christ, it is there that this hope will be most fully realized and experienced. 
Which leads us to the second observation I want to make. Not only that this hope is heavenly, but that this hope is objective. Verse 5 is not referring to the personal feeling of hope. This is not a verb. He's not talking about what the Colossians or what we as Christians are hoping in subjectively. Rather, he's talking about the objective reality of hope. Here, hope is a noun. It's a thing. It's a reality that exists outside of us. Yes, it is related to us. It is laid up for us. It's waiting for us. But it's outside of us. It's apart from us. It's objective reality, something to be experienced fully in heaven. Now, in order to understand how it is that an objective future reality produces subjective present love in our lives, again, we need to ask and answer a couple more questions. First, what does this heavenly hope consist in? What is the Christian's heavenly hope? What is the hope that if you're here this morning and you've placed your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, what is the hope that is laid up for you personally, Christian, that is waiting for you to experience in its fullest in glory in heaven? Well, Consider first with me that when we get to glory, when we get to heaven, what will not be there in heaven? There will no longer be any more tears, any more mourning or crying or sadness. There'll be no more sorrow or sickness, no more weakness or hunger or thirst. There'll be no more death or separation, or loss. No more disappointment, or discouragement, or depression, because there'll be no more curse, because there'll be no more sin. Sin will forever be banished out of heaven in the presence of God. No more sin inside of us, rising up in our fallen hearts, occupying the attitudes and thoughts of our minds. No more sin coming out of us in the way we speak and the way we act toward each other. No more sin around us. There'll be no more ungodly people to tempt us or to discourage us or to pressure us to sin and to rebel against our Lord whom we want to obey. There'll be no more devil No more demons to harass us and to oppress us and to afflict us anymore. No more sin. No more of this fallen, evil age and world to allure us and to tempt us and to draw out our hearts away from loving and serving Christ and doing the will of Christ amongst each other here in the body of Christ. Can you imagine that? There'll be no more temptation to sin. Believer, you won't even be tempted to be tempted to sin. Nothing outside of you to tempt you and nothing inside of you that would even go for the temptation if it could exist. Perfected in glory. But if that's not enough, consider with me not only what will not be there when we get to heaven but what will be there when we get to heaven. When we get to heaven, we will be in the kingdom of God and of his Christ. We will be in a place where righteousness dwells, where there is perfect peace and joy and love between man and God and God and man, between mankind and one another. There in glory will be the holy angels whose never-ending joy it is to worship and serve God, to praise Him day and night. And there will be the souls of just men and women made 
perfect, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, whose delight and unending portion it will be to know and love and serve and worship God in the face of Jesus Christ. And there, more than anything, will be the triune God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There we will know God as a Father, as we've never known him here on earth. There we will have such a sight, unclouded by sin, a sight of his goodness, of his grace, of his mercy, of his love, of his righteousness, of his justice, of his glory, of his beauty, of his wisdom that will ravish our souls and that will lead us to praise him forever and ever. And there, at the center of heaven, at the center of everything, will be Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. He whom our soul delights in, whom our soul loves, the one who laid down his life and was slaughtered for our salvation and rose from the dead for our justification. There will be our friend, our shepherd, our kinsman redeemer, our beloved, our husband, our Jesus. He'll be at the center of everything in heaven. Samuel Rutherford said, If you could stack 10,000 heavens upon one another, Jesus Christ would be at the center of them all. He is the glory of heaven. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not on the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And there with Jesus, face to face, now we see through a mirror darkly, through a veil. There we shall see the King in his beauty without a veil. And we shall enjoy face to face, intimate, undistracted, undiminished, uncorrupted, uninterrupted communion with Jesus Christ. I sometimes think that when we get to heaven, we'll experience what the Queen of Sheba did when she came to see the glory and kingdom of Solomon. You remember she traveled all the way to Jerusalem to see the glory of Solomon, to hear his wisdom. She had heard a report, and she came all the way there. And when she saw the glory, she saw the, the gold and the possessions and the palaces, and she heard his wisdom. Do you remember what she cried out? She said, oh, the half has not been told me. And that's what I think we'll experience in heaven. Oh, the half has not been told me, Lord Jesus. You are far more beautiful than I could ever have imagined. What eye has not seen, what ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart or mind of man, the things that God has prepared for those that love him. Christian, this is your hope that is laid up for you in heaven and that is your inheritance and will soon be yours. But again, the question we have to consider is, how is it that 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 distant future hope so becomes a present reality in our hearts that it produces love for one another in the body of Christ. How does that happen? And I would propose to you that it is when we now subjectively set our hope on that objective hope. It's when we fix our hearts, the affections of our soul, when we place all our joy, all our confidence, all our satisfaction, all our delight, all our contentment in that future glory and reward in heaven, that it produces in us a love for one another in the body of Christ. It frees us 
and enables us to feel and show Christian love. And I think we, we see that reality supported even later in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Turn over to chapter 3. I want you to notice the way he relates heavenly hope and realities to present earthly love amongst each other in Christ. Right at the end of chapter 2, in verse 20, Paul says that we as Christians have died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world. And then having died with Christ, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Since then you have also been raised with Christ... And it's implied here, not just raised to life on earth, but raised, in the words of Paul in Ephesians 2, to heavenly places with Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, verse 1, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, he sets before us these heavenly realities, these glorious truths that we have died, we are risen with Christ, united with him. Our lives are hidden in Christ in glory, in heaven, right now. And so he says, in light of that, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above. Think often on the things in heaven. Set your hearts there. Go after them. Hanker after them. Chase after them. Pursue them with your every thought, with all your energy, with all your strength, with every second of your life. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. All that's there for you in Christ, all that's there waiting for you in glory. And then notice now how that provides the foundation of what comes next. In light of that, verses 5 to 11, he then tells us, put to death the sin that remains in you. That's the key to putting to death sin, seeking the things that are above. But then you get down to verse 12, and he says the key to how we relate to one another also flows out of these heavenly realities. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, (coughs) kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And note verse 14, summing up, I think, all of these things. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, love flows out of a pursuit and an enjoyment of heavenly realities here and now in this life. Turn over quickly also. I just want you to see it in one more place and see the connection between the objective reality and the subjective placing of our hope. First Peter. Turn to First Peter. He says almost an exactly parallel thing to what Paul has said and to sort of the connection I'm making between that future hope and present love. 1 Peter, verse 3, he explodes in praise to God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I believe verse 4 is not something in addition to this hope. It's in apposition to this hope. It's a further description of what this living hope is. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Sound familiar? 
It's exactly what Paul said in Colossians 1, verse 4. There is this hope, and it is alive, because Christ is alive, and you are alive in Christ. And it's there an inheritance, reserved, kept for you in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice. If you get this, you can't help but rejoice. Verse 8, he says, though you have not seen Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There's these heavenly truths in Christ that make us rejoice in glorious, inexpressible ways when we think about them. And therefore, verse 13, drop down to verse 13. He says, preparing your minds for action. I like the literal, girding up the loins of your mind. And being sober-minded, notice what he instructs us as Christians to do about these glorious realities, this hope in heaven, verse 13. He says, now set your hope. There's the subjective act that we have to do. Set your personal hope, where? Fully. Not partially, but fully. I can't help but see a basket back there and think of Easter. Most people think of bunnies and eggs. And the world tells us, don't put all your eggs in one basket. But God tells us, put all your eggs in one basket. Put your hope fully. Completely, entirely. Where? On the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At what you will experience, that future grace that awaits you in Christ and with Christ when he returns in glory. And then flowing out of that, he talks about the gospel and what Christ has done for us in the gospel. Verse 22 He says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. I think that's a reference to the the word of truth, to the gospel. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This so parallels Colossians chapter 1. He says, Epaphras preached the gospel to you. Later in the chapter, he calls it the hope of the gospel. The hope that you heard of in the gospel, this message which was preached to you, this good news, you believed it, and by it you were born again. Colossians 1 says it's producing fruit in you. It saved you. It's changing you. And in that message is a reality of a future hope. This is what the Thessalonians experienced, was it not? 1 Thessalonians 1 and chapter 9 and verses 9 and 10. How you turn from dead idols to serve the true and living God and what? And to wait, to wait for his son Jesus. That was their hope immediately in the gospel, raised up out of this earth and placed in Christ in heaven. And so as we then place our hope in that, it will produce in us feelings of love and acts of sacrificial love to one another. Now, I know this could still sound sort of kind of abstract and and just theory, so I want to show you a couple examples of this I believe we see in the book of Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews. There's a few examples here of how this heavenly hope produces earthly love. And for the, the sake of time... We'll just look at a couple. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And I want you to see here earthly love amongst Christians. Jewish Christians choosing 
feeling love and choosing to love other Christians in the face of persecution, with the threat of loss and danger. Verse 32, the writer calls them, he says, but remember, recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners, fellow partakers with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So just imagine with me this scenario. There are Jews who have become Christians. They were enlightened by the gospel, believed the gospel. Some of them had been arrested for their faith in Jesus and had been imprisoned. The rest of them now were faced with a choice. What do we do? Do we go underground and hide and disassociate, distance ourselves from those Christians because it's dangerous to do that? Or do we go public? Do we actually go and visit them in prison? Do we go find out how they're doing and how we can pray for them and show compassion and sympathy to them in prison, but in doing so, risk everything? Risk our possessions and risk perhaps our freedom and even our own very lives. And verse 34 tells us the choice they made. They had compassion on those in prison. And they noticed this. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They didn't just accept it. They joyfully accepted it. It was their joy to go and visit the Christians in prison and to turn back and see the mobs torching and tearing down their very houses as they walked away from them to show compassion to the Christians in prison. And we've got to ask, where does that come from? How does that happen? And he tells us in verse 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew, or because you know knowing there was something they knew, something they called to mind and believed in their hearts. What was it? That you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I love the way he describes it. It's better quality, maybe even quantity, and it's abiding on all dimensions. It's lasting That house there, those possessions, they're going to burn in the future anyway. They're not lasting. And they may feel nice and may do you good and and do do you good. But they are nothing in comparison with the glory and the reward and the possession that is yours now in heaven and that will be yours if you continue to persevere in showing love to one another in Christ. You see? They had so set their minds on that future reality that they were induced with love to show compassion to the saints. And when the decision came to act on those feelings or to to deny those feelings, to deny those Christians, really to deny Christ for the sake of earthly creature comforts and safety, 
They said none of it. We will forego those things because that is not where our portion lies. That is not our inheritance. That is not our reward. Our reward, our inheritance is in Christ, in heaven, in glory. And they were so satisfied and content with that, they could risk and even lose everything else in life to show love to the brethren. And in doing this, they weren't doing anything original. All they were doing was following in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to chapter 12. It's really neat. If you have time, read chapter 10, especially the end there. Read into chapter 11 and then into chapter 12. You get this whole chapter in chapter 11 about faith and how faith is the assurance of things hoped for. There's the connection. And then after this whole hall of faith, you could say, all these testimonies that bore witness that by faith they did all these things, he comes to the best witness, the best testimony in chapter 12. And he says in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, first he calls us, he exhorts us as Christians, to also lay aside every weight and sin, or the sin, which clings so closely. And let us also run with endurance the race that is set before us. And he tells us how we're to do this. And I believe this is how the Christians in Hebrews 10 did it as well. They were looking, verse 2, looking unto Jesus. And now the author holds out Jesus Christ as the example of this heavenly hope that produced earthly love. Looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, notice this, for the joy or on account of, for the sake of, because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. You say, what was it? that drew the Son of God, the darling of heaven, who up until that time had enjoyed face-to-face communion with the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What was it that drew him out of the glory of heaven, the praise of angels and saints, that drew him to come down to this lowly earth, to humble himself, and to take on human flesh, to be found in the appearance of a man, to suffer in human flesh, as it were, from the cradle all the way to the grave, to be obedient to the will of the Father, even unto death, yea, death, by a cross, to endure all that hostility, being rejected by his brothers, being forsaken by his disciples, being blasphemed and condemned by his people, the Jews, being spat upon and struck and whipped and tortured and hung and nailed to a cruel cross to be willing not only to receive the scorn of wicked men, but the very wrath and hell-fire judgment of his own Father in heaven. What was it that compelled and fueled and motivated him to such acts of sacrifice? You say, well, surely it it was love, right? Yes, it was love, that's right. Divine love. Sacrificial love, true love. But what was the fuel for that love? What was it that produced that love and carried him on in the act of that love? Well, what does verse 2 say? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Because of that future hope, 
that he knew his life would not end in death, but that he would be raised from the dead and his prayer in John 17 would be answered. Father, return to me the glory which I had with you before the world was. That was his hope. That was his glory. That was his joy. The thought of being reunited with the Father in heaven and there with the Spirit and being again the unbroken praise in the center of the worship of angels and saints and one day seeing his own perfect image reflected around him by every man, woman, and child elected by God the Father and purchased by his dying blood. It was that joy, that hope that he fixed his mind upon. And therefore, he could fix his face like flint to go to Jerusalem and to lay down his life, even to the point of suffering crucifixion on the cross. He was the example for the Hebrews in chapter 10. He is our example. And in closing, I just want to make two brief words of of application. What does this mean then for your life today? Maybe tomorrow in the week to come. I can't say exactly, but perhaps it might look something like having a difficult conversation with someone you love. Perhaps a fellow brother or sister in Christ in this very congregation whom you have covenanted to love and to serve in this local reflection of the body of Christ. Perhaps it would be a husband speaking to his wife or a wife speaking to her husband or parents speaking to their children. Anyone who you love and is dear to you that has professed Christ and you view and treat as a brother or sister in Christ and yet perhaps you've noticed a pattern of sin in their life. Perhaps there's something in their life that concerns you. And as you've prayed about it and thought about it, you have felt strong convictions from the Spirit of God to want to go to that loved one and speak to them about that, perhaps even to confront them in that. And yet, what is it that so keeps us often, that binds our tongues from speaking the truth and love to each other? What's the fear that if I say this thing to this person... I may lose a comfortable marriage. I may lose a comfortable household. I may lose a comfortable, easy workplace. I may damage a friendship in this congregation. That person may not like me anymore. They may not think well of me anymore. They may not want to be around me anymore. They may slander and gossip me for what I said to them. Even what just a simple question I ask them out of loving concern. And so in that moment, it's the fear, the anxiety of losing all those things that creeps up and it closes our mouths. And we decide, I'm just going to pray for them and not say anything. But if in that moment, you and I would set our joy and our hope, not on any of those things that are being threatened to be lost and taken from us if we speak in love, if we would set our hope and our affections on the future inheritance that is waiting for us in heaven, we would be free to risk and forego clinging to all of those things I mentioned, and we could go and freely speak the truth in love to a brother and sister in Christ. See? It would work that way too, with meeting one another's needs sacrificially. Maybe there's someone who's struggling to find work and and they just need financial help. Maybe they just, they need time. They they just need you to listen, to sympathize with them, to show compassion. They just need you to sit with them and talk with them and, and just pray with them. And oh, that is a drain on my time and my money and my energy. And I'm so consumed with work and things and entertainment and sports and leisure and planning my next day and and securing my comfort and my ease that I just don't have time. And even if I had the time, I just don't want to give up those things for that brother or sister in Christ. 
You see, again, if, if we would just set our hopes on the inheritance waiting for us in heaven, we could freely give up time, freely give up money, freely give up energy, freely give up ease and comfort and sleep and health and go and sacrificially love that brother or sister in Christ. And in order, I just want to say this in, in closing, in order perhaps just to even help induce the initial feelings of love, because perhaps for many of you, thank God, you, you, your struggle isn't that when I see a need, I'm willing to meet it. That's a good thing. Um, but sadly, many of us just don't even think about others enough to consider what needs might they have initially. Perhaps we aren't praying and thinking and, and just going proactively and, and asking, brother, sister, what are you struggling with? How can I serve you? How can I help you? In order to make clear what you can then do to serve each other in love in Christ. And isn't it interesting again that in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, he holds out the example of Christ. And he says, in light of Christ humbling himself, not regarding equality with God a thing to be grasped, coming to this earth and sacrificing himself on the cross, he says, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude, this way of thinking that does not seek only his own interests, but also the interests of others. That does not regard myself, same word, regard, as more important than others, but regards the needs of others as more important than myself. You see, if we would just by the grace of God grow to see one another as blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ, oh, how that would transform the way we relate to each other. That if I would see you and you would see me and you would see each other, that is a brother in Christ, my brother, with a spiritual bond that is stronger than even a biological blood brother, has the same spirit of God in him or her, that is risen with Christ, bought by the blood of Christ. That is my fellow Christian, my fellow servant of Christ, fellow slave under the master Jesus. That is one who is risen with me in Christ. And when I'm tempted to think, but they're so difficult and they just are so ungrateful and they just don't get it and they're so slow to learn and they're just so sinful. Oh, if I would just see them as they will be one day in glory, fully perfected, fully conformed to the image of Christ, which is what they are positionally now anyway in the eyes of God. If I could just see them with the eyes of God, how I would love them and conspire and think, what can I be doing to better serve them and do them good? Amen.